Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I am talking today with Luna Corbin. Now, we've met through a mutual friend, Janice Selby. We were both recently presenters at the Court 2022, the Conference on Religious Trauma. So thank you to Janice for introducing us. Uh, welcome, Jan- uh, I should say, Luna. Welcome, Luna, to MindShift Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on here. I'm really glad we got a chance to meet. We've had a couple of issues. I had COVID last week, then you had internet problems at home. We've tried to make this happen, I don't know how, how many times, but... <laughs> Now, we finally got a recording time, and we're here to talk about, well, I think we're going to talk about your backstory a little bit, coming out of Mormonism, and then getting into your work. Well, you mentioned before we hit record, what's kind of your area of specialty as an ex-Mormon? Um, well, a few years ago, I, uh, well, a couple of decades ago, actually, I really got into cults, uh, researching cults and studying cults. It was a couple of years after I left Mormonism, um, and I noticed a lot of comparisons between my experience as a Mormon and um, people talking about uh, cults in general and the manipulation methods that are used on people who are in cults. And um, I planned to write a book, and so um, once I got the chance um, to be supported in that, I I did write a book that details it. Basically, I pulled together all the manipulation methods that uh, other cult researchers had discovered, basically, while looking at other people who had left cults, and pulled them all together kind of in one place. Um, I, I identified 31 of them, and then drew comparisons between those methods and what Mormonism teaches and basically says, okay, here's how they instill in phobias. Here's how they uh, do trans induction, all of that kind of stuff um, to sort of demystify what goes into cults because people get from TV and things like that. They get this idea of drugs or spinning discs or mm-hmm. hypnotic wheels or whatever like that. And yeah. it's really a lot more simple than that because we do go into altered states and we do tend to believe what people tell us. We, we just have tendencies that lead us into those. So um, that's what I do. Uh, I help ex-Mormons recover mostly through my written work and through doing podcasts and things like that. Um, I may end up doing something like life coaching or something at some point. I'm looking into that. So um, yeah, that's what I do. That was very much near and dear to my heart because obviously for those that have listened to my podcast at any length of time, I've gotten into cult psychology. And as we said, before we hit record, it was all about years ago, I was watching a series of documentaries on the crime and investigation channel here in the UK and started coming across all these documentaries about you know people that had come out of the nation of Islam and Scientology and Nexium and all this kind of thing. And what struck me was how similar their stories were to mine. And I'm an ex-evangelical Christian. I'm thinking, now, wait a minute, on the face of it, that shouldn't be. Because, of course, I didn't grow up in a cult. I grew up in a nice Christian home. And I went to a Christian church. And then it was that that started me to research kind of a, maybe in a similar way to you, the actual manipulation tactics. So I read reading books like Robert Lifton and, you know, Stephen Hassan and Yanya Lalich. And then I'm like, oh, my God, I did grow up in a cult. And now I've got so much work to do. So we may have gone on similar paths in that regard. It sounds like it. Yeah. And that's really what um, any kind of high demand or controlling group, that is one of their big advantages is getting people to think, oh, those other people are in cults. That's not something I would do. My thing is normal. And that feeling of normalcy is very much a part of, of how they get you. Um, and how they get you to not see what's right in front of your face. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. so true. It becomes normalized, doesn't it? You just accept, well, you don't know any different, especially, I don't know about your story. I'm sure we'll get into it in a minute, but in my case, I was born into it. I was raised in it. So I didn't know any better. I only ever had that religious identity. I felt like I never had a separate identity that was actually me apart from a religious one. I only ever had that religious one. So maybe we should get into your story before we get too much into the cult psychology. Were you born into Mormonism or how did you get out? What's your story then? I was born into Mormonism. Uh, My parents were converts. Uh, They converted in the late 50s. 
And um, uh, my parents are quite a bit older than me. Uh, so I have an older brother and sister uh, that were uh, basically babies when they were baptized into Mormonism. Um, and I came along in the 70s. And um, yeah, I was totally, completely, 100% immersed in it. Um, very isolated. I was um, semi-isolated. Mormons are kind of, they, they like to write, the Malu control is the um, technique uh, that kind of comes into play here of isolating people from information outside. Mormonism, unlike say Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they are mainstreamed. Um, they, like we uh, had jobs, we had, we celebrated holidays, we went to school usually with an asterisk. I was homeschooled. Mm-hmm. Um, not every Mormon is. It's, uh, you know, I was uh, kind of a weirdo in that sense of being homeschooled when I was in the 80s. But there's still that sort of like, that's evil and that's evil and you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't listen to that. And so they do keep you from that information. So in that sense, um, I was very isolated, um, especially once I started being homeschooled, which I have mixed feelings about that. We could talk about that if you want. Um, I think it was good for me in a lot of ways and was bad for me in other ways. Uh, overall, I think it was the best experience for me, given my options. Uh, then, so, and I was like what they called a Molly Mormon. I was like really into it. Like as a teenager, I was the one that was like lecturing. I didn't have a lot of friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was like thinking what to myself, like, <laughs> yeah, totally. I was like judging people all the time of, you know, like, oh, your skirt is too short or you're 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 too boy crazy or you know whatever um things i was judging people for and then and then i uh got married really young and uh i was 18 i converted a guy and he was slightly abusive i had worse abusers than him uh, he was uh, definitely an over abuser it was very obvious what he was doing and so it was really easy to see through it i, I got pregnant while we were married and then he i caught him in some lies and i i realized that that was kind of a dead-end situation and i went against my upbringing and divorced him my parents were supportive of that because they didn't like him very much and um but there i was i was a single parent in the mid 90s and it really changed my worldview like a lot um i was still mormon but i couldn't be quite so judgmental of pretty much anybody at that point because i'd done the thing that you weren't supposed to do i got in a divorce and i was a single parent um and so that was probably like the first really big, uh, I guess if you want to call it a doubt, in, in ex-Mormon circles, we have, we, we, Mormons say you should put your doubts on the shelf. And so ex-Mormons say my shelf broke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I, that that, was like, I, I know that one. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, so next, so evangelicals talk like that too? Oh, yes. I, I okay. picked that one up from um, Yanya Lalich. And she used okay. that metaphor, yeah, when you just place your doubts on the shelf, on the shelf. and questions and concerns, eventually the shelf can't handle the weight and it collapses. It's and great. then a lot of people deconstruct and that's when they start really thinking about maybe getting out of whatever their religion or, or group that they're into. Exactly. Yeah. So this was like my first really huge doubt that went on the shelf um, was just seeing, you know, I was, I was, I, like I said, I already didn't have a lot of friends. I'm in the autism uh, spectrum. So um, there's this sort of vibe that you got to maintain as a Mormon to be popular. And I just couldn't quite, at least among the youth, uh, adults really love me. But then, then I was sort of outcast because I was a single mother um, and used goods and that whole thing. And so uh, I, I really struggled in my twenties to have a lot of social connections. And I think that really added to my ability to leave and my big i have a weird exit story it, like there's so many exit stories that are in common among ex-mormons you know there's you know the, pick pick one of the of the 20 that mm-hmm. the normal way and then the top five are like found stuff on the internet about mormonism being and joseph smith like that's like number one well mine this was in the early 2000s and the internet hadn't really um there were some websites that were anti-mormon but there really weren't a whole lot of like organized stuff behind that well, not a lot of people were leaving the church at the time and so um i so my story is kind of weird i'm a science fiction author also and i was with some friends on the internet who were talking about this thing called the technological singularity um, which is this idea that someday humanity will invent something more intelligent than us whether it's artificial intelligence or we augment ourselves to be more intelligent and that the tech the technological progress which has been increasing very rapidly will just sort of hit this um singularity this point at which all things are invented kind of all at once and i was thinking about that and everyone was doom and gloom about that so i started like really doing my own thinking about that of like why uh, what are the things that are going to go into this and um i ended up 
coming up with all these things about what an, a higher intelligence would be like, you know, would it really enslave us like in the matrix or destroy us all like in the Terminator, like would it would it really be all that bad? And, and my conclusions that I came up with about what a higher intelligence would be like, I wrote an essay about it. And as I was writing the essay, there was one of those little doubts in the back of my mind. I was like, hold up. I know you're a big thought. <laughs> you need to wait until I'm done writing the essay. Right. So I finished put the this essay. on the shelf. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I finished the essay in which I described all kinds of things about this higher intelligence, about how incomprehensible it would be and how it would have motivations that we couldn't understand. And motivations are kind of the same as emotions. So it would have emotions that we couldn't understand. I really got in the dirt of like how incomprehensibly mind-blowing this higher intelligence would be and how we really couldn't predict um, what it would want or what it would do. And then the thought that I put on the shelf and I then considered it hit me like a lightning bolt. Everything I was describing was God. Everything I was describing was God. And this, this God that I'd been taught, which was comprehensible, he's a father, he's a parent, he's loving, he has a purpose for us. Um, we're here to be tested, to have an experience. All of that stuff made zero sense. And that any idea of a revelation of a God that, that teaches through re revelation through one specific individual, like a prophet, um, and then that person's supposed to tell everyone else, that suddenly made absolutely zero sense to me either. Um, and so all the thought that any revealed religion was true just became impossible for me to believe. So I threw Mormonism and Christianity right out and along with any other like Abrahamic religion threw it right out. And I, I really struggled with that for like three months. I really had, I didn't commit to it. I, I didn't, I kind of wasn't going to church at the time anyway, because I really couldn't make any friends there is again, I was kind of stigmatized. Um, and so I spent that three months continuing not going to church and just really like thinking about it, like, okay, how can this still be true? Poking holes in my, in my idea and really trying to tear it apart and make God conquer and put God back in the box. And I couldn't, I couldn't put God back in the box. Um, and so um, the big, the big thing in Mormonism is, is sex. Um, and so that was sort of the big um, line. I knew that if I crossed, there would be no coming back. And so I, I started seeing this guy and it came up and uh, I crossed the line. Uh, I crossed the line and never looked back. I mean, I look back all the time, mm -hmm. but never look back in terms of like, okay, is this, is this right for me? And that first year was really tumultuous. You know, I'd had my entire reality yanked out from underneath of me. And so then I had to piece together which aspects of reality were still real and which weren't. There were a lot of other things on the shelf as well that went into that, but those were kind of the biggest pieces. Um, and then after that first year of just kind of you know, the fear, the fear of like, okay, what if I'm wrong? And what if God's really mad at me and um, all of that? Um, yeah, I, I dealt with it and uh, I made some mistakes, but nothing I couldn't come back from. Yeah, the rest is history. Uh, and you got it. out. Well, yeah. going back yeah. to your backstory, I was thinking about, did you grow up in a sort of Mormon enclave? Did you grow up in a place like a Utah where there's so many thousands and th tens of thousands of Mormons? Or were you in a more of an isolated community? Um, I was born in Salt Lake, but we moved to Washington State when I was three. And there's kind of layers of that. So there's the fundamentalist LDS who are, those are the ones that live off, like in a specific isolated, physically isolated compound yeah. where they literally don't talk to anyone outside right. of like that. Like the, War the Warren Jeffs type FLDS. Exactly. Yeah. And that's not the sect that I was raised in. I was raised in the mainstream church. And then, and again, that's a mix. The Malu control there is a mix. If you live like in Utah proper, if you're in Salt Lake City, it's it's a little bit more of a mix of different kinds of people, people who have left the church and secular people and Catholics. And uh, but outside of Salt Lake, you can get some really, really isolated communities where you're not specifically prohibited from talking to anyone outside the church, but also you just kind of tend not to. And and your family is going to be in all your friends are going to be in uh, your employer is going to be in all of that. That wasn't really my experience. I in in eastern Washington where I grew up, it's about ten percent LDS here. So uh, definitely a thing where everybody knows someone who's Mormon, but a thing where also all the Mormons here know someone who's not Mormon. So. Mm -hmm. So yeah. when you left, did you experience the classic shunning? excommunication disfellowship piece that's so common in cultic type high control groups 
thankfully not and thankfully so again mormonism is a mixed bag on the shunning we're not like jehovah's witnesses where it's like you absolutely have to shun as a policy um so it really kind of depends on your family and how and your friends and how they interpret the doctrine you're going to get though if you don't get the shunning you're going to get the opposite which is the preachiness and the mm-hmm. grabbiness and the the love bombing and the trying to pull you back in um and so uh my family is kind of a mixed bag on that at the time like i said i wasn't going to church a lot i was having trouble making friends in church and so most of my friends were out of the church most of my friends were from the science fiction convention kind of circuit the geeks kind of the geek crowd so thankfully uh, i had a place to land afterwards uh but not not every ex-mormon is so lucky and i did have i still to this day have issues with my family that are still in after two decades um just preachiness and grabbiness and them not understanding and just feeling alone and slated from that mm-hmm. so. that's a common thing certainly in evangelical circles too isn't it where you have the the parents the concerned parents or in-laws or friends that are they're they're convinced we're going to hell for sure <laughs> you know so you see a lot of boundary violations and things if you got kids for example send them over to grandma and grandpa's for the weekend and of course they take them to church and they give them a bible to bring home and all that kind of stuff sometimes it could be very passive aggressive surely you must have had some of that kind of stuff i just got an email yesterday from my dad so it's a it 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 still happens um it takes a lot of boundary setting and and not just setting but re-establishing those boundaries like over and over and over and it's exhausting but you know you you do what you can because you you love your family and that's what you do so. don't want to cut off i mean you could that's that's one option that you could cut off all communication that is a a thing you could do yeah some people have to do that unfortunately yeah. don't they yeah and i recommend it i recommend it if if your family is causing too much chaos in your life if they're not respecting your boundaries like you've got to back those boundaries up with something and and if if it's better for your emotional and mental health to like if, if they're toxic and in your face all the time and causing you emotional turmoil all the time if they're not going to listen to that hey you need to take a step back then you've got to take a step back from them and you just got to and in my case it really depends on your family and like the the, the temperament and the nature of your family i'm really fortunate that my parents are the type of people that when it comes down to it they do choose family over um, their religion. Not every family is like that. So you've got to be willing to take that chance that they'll just be like, well, fine, we don't want to talk to you either. And that's the end of that. Like, you've got to take that chance. You've got to be willing to back that up. Fortunately, my family is uh, different than that. They're, they are loving and are trying the best they can. Um, and so uh, they, they were willing to work it out with me and, and are willing to, to listen to those boundaries. Again, when I, I do have to reestablish them sometimes, mm-hmm. but they are willing to respect them. Well, you say you were raised in more of a mainstream Mormon tradition. How do mainstream Mormons view groups like the FLDS? Because I'm thinking, I'm sure you've watched the Netflix documentary, Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey. I'm sure I tried to watch it, but (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to have to take it in pieces because that it's really, it's, it's triggering. It's really uh, upsetting. I mean, I grew up in a, um, but I, I've read books. I've read uh, Under the Banner of Heaven, which is, they, there's that series that's based on, which I, I'm waiting for them to finish all the episodes before I watch that one. Um, but I, I, I have consumed a lot of material about polygamy, so I'm, I'm pretty well aware of it. And I, and that's the thing, that's one reason it's really triggering is because like I was raised, I had a Sunday school teacher when I was about 14 tell me, and this is, Mormonism has different folk theories about the place of polygamy within mainstream Mormonism. And so I I had a male Sunday school teacher at the age of 14 tell me that he thought polygamy was an eternal law and that this this time without polygamy is temporary and that we were all going to have to be prepared to live the principle uh, someday. And he was a well-respected member of our congregation. And that was a life that, that I was like this close to. Like if if I had been attempted to have been recruited by one of the FLDS, which is what they do, they they go into mainstream LDS congregations, usually in Utah, and they find vulnerable uh, young women who have been already been groomed to be receptive to these ideas, which is exactly what this guy was doing for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he probably wasn't targeting me exactly, but that's that's the effect that it had. Because there I was, I was 14, and I was thinking, well, uh, what would it be like to share, you know, and it turns out I'm polyamorous, 
So um, I went kind of wandering around for a little bit. So it turns out I'm polyamorous. So it was actually kind of good in some ways that I did consider those things because I ended up, uh, I'm single right now, but I have lived um, a polyamorous lifestyle, but that's an equal playing field. That is like, I got to see other people. They got to see other people. We all got to see other people and it was consent based and it was equality based. Um, you know, there was certainly some toxic stuff going on there, but we were trying really hard not to. Um, whereas polygamy, that is, no, you're the girl, you're the woman, you have to do what we say. And what we say is you have to marry this really old creepy guy. And yeah, I, I got like 15 minutes into keep sweet or maybe a half hour into it. And I was like, oh boy i gotta step back from take a break. can't do this right now or take yeah. it in very small chunks well i watched i think there's two episodes i'd seen things on F, the flds and warren just before so some of it was rehashing old ground for me but what was fascinating was like you say you take the core theology of that group the flds that says that a woman has to be married to a man who's got multiple multiple wives to assure her place in heaven. And I think, isn't it true that the more wives the man has, the higher his status is going to be in heaven. So of course this makes sense. And I think Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, they were both polygamists, if I'm not oh, mistaken. Time. So the early so they, Mormon leaders were polygamists. Yeah. Joseph Smith, I think had 27 wives and Brigham Young. They're not entirely sure the exact count, but it was in the forties at least, or there's mm-hmm. like at least 40 documented wives of Brigham Young. So how do they square, how do mainstream Mormons then today square the fact that their early, well, the pioneer of the movement was himself a polygamist, preached polygamy, and yet today the mainstream Mormon church has disavowed that? How do they explain that sort of theologically? So it's it's there's a lot of don't ask, don't tell going on in the church. And they kind of deal with the specific doubts of each person kind of as it comes up. So there are certain there are certain topics of doctrine where they're very clear on it. Like every general conference, they get up and they're like, this is this is this specific doctrine. This is what it is. And that's that. And there are other doctrines where where it's like, well, this person said that, but that person said that and they're in conflict. And and it's best if like nobody knows about any of it. And so that's kind of the church's policy is that as many people who don't get to know about polygamy as possible is better. So there are a lot of people who leave Mormonism who are surprised to find out that Joseph Smith ever had more than Emma Smith, because in the official document, most of the official documentation of the church, they pretend that Emma was the only wife. But then the church doesn't want to be caught lying. So they do admit it. I mean, it's in one of their scriptures. It's literally in, I think, Doctrine and Covenants uh, 132, I think is the one. If it's, I could be wrong about that. But um, it, it, there's, you know, specifically passages in there where God is telling Emma that she needs to shut up and let him have his wife mm-hmm. and, that, knuckle and, that, under. and exactly and that you have to live the principle or else you don't get to get in the celestial kingdom like that that is in the scripture but Pretty they kind of gloss over it and um and then they also have some publications called the essays um the gospel doctrine or gospel topic essays which are hidden on the website um if you google it you'll you'll find it but they don't advertise it. So then they can say, well, we told you it's right there in black and white. The whole time we've told you that polygamy was there, which by the way, the whole time is they they just put that up a few years ago. So before that, there wasn't, they didn't admit to any of it. it right? But there. They're trying to deal with the problem of people finding this information elsewhere and trying to get the search engine mm-hmm. optimization up so that their version of the story is the only one that gets told. Right. But only get in if there you first. find it. Yeah, but only if you find <laughs> it. So there's a mixed bag. I grew up knowing about polygamy and it was excused away. Uh, I was taught in seminary, which is what high schoolers go through, just like a high school class, that it was commanded of God and that it was temporary. Aside from that one Sunday school teacher, um, I was taught that it was temporary, that it was a solution, a practical solution to, uh, which is also a lie. Uh, Supposedly, there were a lot more women during the persecution times than men. And so it was a way to sort of financially take care of all these women in a society where marriage was required for you to financially take care of women or something, I don't know, which turns out to be a lie that the ratio actually wasn't that distorted. There, there were a lot of lies around that. So that's kind of what I was thought I was taught. And I was taught there was a revelation given to one of the prophets in like one, there were two different revelations, uh, one in 1898 or something and one in like 1907 or somewhere around there. It was basically like, stop being polygamist. Uh, God was like, put it, um, but they were still practicing, including that same prophet went on continuing to practice polygamy, continuing to marry new wives. And it's still part of 
mainstream LDS practice today in the sense that if you, there's temple marriage, which is a sealing of you forever and ever to your spouse, which is kind of where polygamy kind of came. It's kind of an offshoot of that principle. Mm -hmm. But if you're a woman and you get a divorce, you can get a temple divorce from your husband, but only if there's been like proven abuse or adultery. And that's the only way if you're a woman to remarry in the temple to get a different spouse. So you have to be uh, monogamous in the eternities. But the man can just be like, oh, yeah, I'll, I don't need to temple divorce her. I'll just marry a new wife. And he is now spiritually married to two people for the eternities. And right. that's OK. Mitt, Mitt Romney, I think Mitt Romney has two spiritual wives at this point, And that it's just, you know, his one of his wives died. One of his wives died and he just married. And I, I hope I'm not getting the details wrong on that. He either divorced <laughs> or got a new wife. And maybe it wasn't Mitt Romney, maybe it was somebody else. Um, but it, whoever is, um, yeah, the wife died and he married someone else. Uh, the current prophet of the church, I think, has... Uh, two spiritual wives, maybe three, mostly due to death, not divorce, because the prophet would never get divorced. Don't know. Oh, no. Um, it would never happen. But again, there's that stigma, right? There's that stigma mm-hmm. about it. So, um, yeah. When we return in the second half of my chat with Luna, we're going to get into some more of these issues around Mormonism, some of the issues that have really have bedeviled this religion, honestly, since the beginning, we're going to talk about Joseph Smith. Then we're going to get into her book. She talks about all the various cult tactics, the psychological elements that not only Mormons use within that cult, and really I would say it is a destructive cult in many ways, but it's also sort of ubiquitous. It's universal across all religion. We're going to compare our stories. We're also going to get into the issue of how do you start to rebuild your life, like she talks about taking back that sense of agency after you've left a certain religion or a cult or some sort of group with undue influence. And then we're going to touch at the very end on this issue of Mormon dominion. Does it relate at all to what I've been working on for so long now, Christian dominion, the idea of taking over, especially in America, making America a Christian nation again? To what extent is Mormonism involved in that or what's their agenda? Certainly we know the Mormon church has very, very deep pockets. So we're going to touch on that toward the end of this chat. I wanted to let you know what's coming up here too on the next couple of episodes here on Mindshift Podcast. I've got Kerry Noble coming up on the next one. We're going to be talking about his time in the CSA, the Covenant Sword and Arm of the Lord, which was a white supremacist militia group out of Arkansas in the 70s and 1980s. Then I had a chat the other day with returning guest Dr. David DeAndre. We talked about his new book that's just come out. It's called Tulip the poisonous flower of Calvinism, and we took a deep dive into how exactly some of the tenets of Calvinism are so destructive. And then speaking of the Bible, I've I've been in touch with my good friend Andrew Gurevich. He's been on the show a few times before. It's been several years since we talked, but I approached him several months ago, and now we finally lined this up next week. But we're going to be talking about the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Now, why in the world would we want to talk about the Bible and certainly the book of Ezekiel, but I'm going to call this episode Fractured Bible Tales or something like that. And Andrew and I have both gone through a tremendous amount of deconstruction. We both went to Bible college together. We both went to seminary together. We served in ministry together. We studied Greek and Hebrew together. So if anyone's qualified to talk about Ezekiel and specifically the role that it played in both of our deconstruction, walking away from the Christian faith, ironically, it was the Bible itself in so many ways that for so many of us, was the thing that put paid to our faith. So we're going to be talking uh, next week on the book of Ezekiel. So look for that episode coming up as well. So let's get on back into the second half of this chat with Luna. And as I mentioned at the end of the episode, I'm going to be asking Luna to come back in hopefully September as we start up our Mindshift Zoom calls again. We've been taking a break for the summer, but this is something that will be starting up again. This is uh, something you can access by being a Patreon supporter of the show. And as always, the links to that are in the show notes. And in fact, speaking of presentations and and talking to groups, I did a presentation the other week on the Atheists of Florida site, and that's going to be available on their YouTube channel. So if you want to catch my conversation, my presentation that I did, it was called Poison Punch and Purple Shrouds Inside the World of Cult Psychology and Tactics. You can go on the Atheists of Florida YouTube channel and you'll find that. And my talk on Christian Dominion Theology, that's also available on that channel as well. So if you're looking for more information either about cult psychology or dominion theology, 
you can look up the Atheists of Florida YouTube channel. All right, let's get on back into the second half of this chat with Luna Corbden. We're talking about this issue of recovering a sense of agency, lifting the veil of Mormon mind control. Well, how much of your, you mentioned earlier that people do get out how much of that relates to the backstory of a guy like Joseph Smith? Because you mentioned, you know, people research Joseph Smith and they're like, oh, my God, you know, he he was I guess he was a charlatan. He was a treasure hunter. He built people out of money. His whole story about how he found the plates, the golden plates and reformed Egyptian. and all These were all the things that I studied as an evangelical to combat Mormons who would come to our doorstep. So you must have gone on a mission. You must have run into someone like me who like had studied the early history of Mormonism. And that's what I was taught how to get a person out of this cult of Mormonism was to show them what a fraud Joseph Smith was and how fraudulent their beliefs by extension were. What, what did you make of, of the sort of evangelical like me on that you'd knock on my door and, you know, get into an argument. What did you make of that? We were prepped against you guys pretty well. Um, oh, you were. So, yeah. So this is where the Malou control comes in. Um, in that we're allowed to talk to people outside, but we have these mental defenses set up against any of those um, particular things. First of all, we're warned against anti-Mormon material, which is what's called anti-Mormon. Like that's, first of all, that's built in the code. The code right there in the word itself is that like, uh, and we're taught that they're hateful people and they're they're led by Satan and they're just trying to to get people away from God's true word and um, they're full of lies, so you can't trust anything they say. They make up everything they say, or if, if what they're saying is the truth, they've distorted it in some way. So that really pretty much did it. We're, we were instructed not to read any of that stuff, not to entertain any of that stuff. We were taught that we could engage with it if it's someone who was talking to us, but we needed to be in a proselytizing mindset to try to bring them around to us. And that really the best policy was to disengage with that sort of thing in the first place um, and just not go there. Uh, I didn't serve a mission, but I did I did encounter some of that stuff, particularly like when I was converting my ex-husband he came across someone who had given him some literature about that. And so he brought some of that information to me. He brought to me that how many changes there were to the Book of Mormon. And I already had a thing that I'd been told, oh, those were just spelling mm-hmm. corrections. And they put them into chapters and they broke it into paragraphs and verses and stuff like it was just all just uh, like uh, non-consequential semantic mm-hmm. changes that yeah. weren't any real. Like I wasn't told that they actually changed some of the meanings of some of the verses with their wording changes, which is absolutely what they did to try to make it less racist and to try to uh, confirm some of the Mormon doctrines that were in conflict that they it was in the Book of Mormon said one thing and Mormon doctrine said another you got to fix that there's still a lot of things in conflict by the way the Book of Mormon says one thing and Mormon doctrine mm-hmm. says another but uh, those are less uh, direct I guess and more excusable so yeah we were just given all these ways to excuse it my ex-husband before before we married he brought to me something about um, Mark Hoffman I had no idea of course since then I've seen the documentary on Netflix and I know the story a little bit better uh he the Kinderhook plates he tried to talk to me about which is uh someone in uh Joseph Smith's time who made some fake uh lost scripture he he made these little metal uh weird shaped with strange writing on it. it was completely made and then he fake aged it and uh, using acid washes and stuff like that to make these very old looking plates. And he took them to Joseph Smith and he's like, translate these. And Joseph Smith's like, ah, whoa, do I have a story to tell? This is from an ancient prophet from so-and-so. All right. Lost civilization. Actually, exactly. Yeah. And he didn't put them into scripture, but he like the book of Abraham, which he did put into scripture, but he did, uh, he did basically expound upon it. And uh, turns out the guy totally made it up. And so, so yeah, my, my ex-husband tried to bring that to me and I, I wasn't having it. I didn't even listen to him. I didn't even hear him out because I was just convinced that it was complete nonsense and total, total lies. Mm-hmm. Well, there was something I remember hearing about Joseph Smith got caught up in, cause he was in 19th century, wasn't he? In upstate New York where it all started. There was something about at that point, Egyptian hieroglyphs hadn't really been translated thoroughly yet. They were in the process of breaking the code with the Rosetta Stone and all that. But he could get away with saying it was a reformed Egyptian because nobody knew how to read hieroglyphs. But then 
as they actually started to decipher the hieroglyphs, he couldn't get hide behind that. Besides, Reformed Egyptian isn't even a language anyway. So a lot of that stuff was contextual in that day, whereas now he wouldn't be able to get away with the claims that he made back in the 19th century, surely, would he? Well, he wouldn't if he were new, but he is getting away with it in terms of Mormons who still believe it. So there's there's two stories there that you're kind of conflating. One of them is that the Book of Mormon was supposedly written on gold plates in what you're calling Reformed Egyptian, mm -hmm. which was where these Hebrews came over to the Americas in 600 BC, and they sort of knew Egyptian or whatever, for some reason, I don't know why they would, because they were Hebrew, um, but th but they that's what they wrote the Book of Mormon in, was in this like evolved language, like after after they'd been here in the Americas for a while, for, for a couple, for a thousand, 1500 years or so, then they wrote, they wrote down their history, basically in this different language. Um, but the gold plates were conveniently taken up by an angel. So we can't we don't have any like physical evidence there to compare so egyptologists can't go and look at that language and say oh yeah this is totally true or isn't but the the one where the egyptologists have them for sure is joseph smith bought these papyruses uh, out of a, a a sarcophagus that was going around with a mummy in it and he bought these papyruses these what he said were ancient scriptures and he said that they were written by abraham and it was the story of abraham and he translated them and then conveniently the papyruses were lost they were thought to have been burnt and lost forever so conveniently they were gone well then the rosetta stone gets translated right it gets discovered in, in the hall of egypt well but conveniently the original papyruses were missing there were there were two or three facsimiles which were images from the papyrus that were they weren't advertised as being edited but they were edited they were changed and, and they supposedly showed the egyptian priest sacrificing abraham and there were all these like urns and stuff that were that joseph smith ascribed to being all these different gods that they were sacrificing abraham to well it turns out that they did discover the papyruses i i don't i'm not super up on the history and the ins and outs of all this stuff i think they were discovered in like a museum archive in chicago they were like these are actually the ones that joseph smith translated from oh and by the way and we knew this from the facsimiles this is just the egyptian book of the dead Right. But it's nothing to in, do with Abraham. And there all are that. copies of this in every single tomb that we have yeah. ever opened up in Egypt. It is basically going through the ritual of how to prepare a body for the afterlife. And the facsimiles depict the urns of the different organs that go in the different urns. And the uh, they change the jackal face of the sacrificial guy from, from being a god to being a person. doing the And it wasn't a sacrifice they were preparing. This whole... The entire book is just plain old a copy. It's like finding the Gideon's Bible and saying, oh, this is a long lost alien text. No, it's just the Gideon Bible. So um, that is incontrovertible evidence. There's no yeah. arguing about it. There, there's no, but well, the church's line on it now is that if they can't succeed in hiding this from people, which is their number one strategy, their, their line is that maybe Joseph Smith used it as like a channel God was actually telling him Abraham's story and he was just using the papyrus as like a inspiration to, as a vehicle to pull. Right. But that's not what I was taught. I was taught that it was literally the hand of Abraham wrote those scrolls. So yeah, that's those, that's the, the background on that story. Put that one on the shelf until it breaks. Well, exactly. you mentioned before you talked about in your book, you've identified loads of psychological manipulation tactics. Maybe we could end up on this issue of the cult psychology, what sort of things did you identify that were, I guess I should say, are they unique to Mormonism or are they, did you find, you know, universal things across other religions as well in terms of the cult psychology? It's universal. Uh, I'm not going to say every religion uh, uses these techniques um, because I think that there are healthy religions out there that don't or that use them less uh, to very increasing or lesser degrees. Um, but yeah, there, uh, I, I haven't really found anything special in mormonism in terms of like generalized control techniques they certainly have gotten creative about implementing some in creative ways for instance uh, they get you attached to your family by using this eternal family concept that you have to be um, righteous and good in order to be with your family in the eternities and therefore um, that 
that it's still the same social pressure, which is the, the concept that they're leveraging, but they're tying it directly to your family and tying your behavior to your connection to your family. Um, so, so there's some unique spins that they've put on some of these, but certainly each of the techniques are ubiquitous across any controlling organization, not just religions, uh, including uh, controlling businesses, companies, political organizations, therapy groups. Um, there, there can be toxic therapy groups for sure. Uh, meditation groups, things like that. All right. So what are the basic sort of control mechanisms and things that you were able to identify that are, I see you're reaching for your book now. I'm reaching so for my got... book because there's 31 of them. So I don't have them all memorized. I can usually rattle yeah. off a few examples. You can't memorize all 31. Come on, Luna. I'm really disappointed. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let me just, let me just list them all. Give me some uh, of the highlights here, you know? All right. So we got love bombing, destabilization, yeah. deception, Sacred science. I gave a talk on that. that oh, was yeah. Talk was that Robert Lifton. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, in fact, eight of these are from Robert Lifton. He came mm-hmm. up with the first eight. Mystical manipulation, milieu control, demand for purity, which I also call perpetual inadequacy because that's the second half to that one. Dispensing of existence, doctrine over self, loading the language, totalist reframing, thought terminating cliches, social pressure, belief follows behavior, public commitment, creating dependency, Black and white thinking, elitism, us versus them thinking, indirect directives, influence through identification and example, emotion over intellect, induced phobias, transinduction and dissociative states, time control, the double bind, blame reversal, guilt and shame, confession, euphoria induction, and proselytizing. So, so that they get everything done with with all 31 of those. There might be some I missed somehow, but that's uh, kind of the core. Some of those are used. They, each of them kind of serves a purpose, and they all work together with each other. Um, no single one of them will work for very long on its own. Like someone might be able to con you out of ten bucks on a street corner with using just one of them, but no one's going to get you into a full controlling totalist high demand organization without using it. You know, at least you know half of those. Um, and mm-hmm. and usually I find all of them in any organization I, lo- I look at, any controlling organization that I look at. So mm-hmm. some of them are used to pull people in. Some of them are used to keep people from leaving. Some of them are used to keep people watching each other, sort of spying on each other and keeping each other in check. Um, some of them are used to quell inner doubts. Some of them are used to quell external doubts that are coming from outside. So there's each one of sources. I see it as like a Rube Goldberg machine. You know, the when, you, when yeah. you're watching a comedy show and there's that, you know, like like on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, you know, the egg rolls down uh, and then it strikes a match and the match burns through mm. a string and the string causes the egg to fall and that causes a thing to crack the egg. Like Like it's a complicated machine. Um, and you can remove any one part, um, but the, the machine's going to kind of keep, the person's going to be motivated to fix the broken part as quickly as possible. From your research, do you find that are more people born into Mormonism or are they converted? Because you mentioned love bombing. That was one that stuck out to me because as an ex-evangelical, I mean, proselytizing and evangelizing was a big part of our religion. We felt guilt and shame. We had to do it. And obviously Mormons, they're supposed to go on at least, what is it, a two-year mission they're right. supposed to go out. So that's got to be a big piece of it. Are more people born in, do you think, or are they actually converted in? Um, I think in the United States, more people are born in. Uh, mm-hmm. It really depends. Um, they tend to have a lot of, um, I'm going to put air quotes, success in certain countries where there are some countries where culturally and socially people are just supposed to say yes to whatever anybody asks. So if someone knocks on your door, if it's some, some polite young men knock on your door and say, you know, can we talk to you for a little bit? Like you're supposed to say yes. And if they say, well, can we get you to commit to a baptism? You're supposed to say yes. And you just go through the motions and you don't actually convert. So there are a lot of countries where they see huge amounts of baptisms and then huge amounts of inactives or people who eventually get their names removed, but mostly just inactives though. They just stop going to church. It was just that thing they did to appease those nice young men and and because that's what their culture says they need to do and that's that. So I, I would say though in the United States it's mostly converts. It's it's or sorry, mostly uh, people born in. Right. Because the church does have this emphasis on having as many kids as possible, um, sort of an anti-birth control kind of a, it's not a hundred percent anti-birth control stance uh, officially like the Catholic Church has, but you're kind of supposed to not do birth control usually and it's kind of a gray area. Um, so yeah, having a lot of kids is really, really what it's about in the U.S. It's it's hard to convince 
someone of the Mormon story in the United States this day and age. Right. Nowadays, yeah, a fresh convert, as it were, they're going to go, wait a minute, I've, I've heard something about Joseph Smith. I've heard some of this stuff about the golden plates and all this. Hang on a minute. No, no, no. Yeah. 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 And you the internet's too, it's too easy to find stuff on the internet too. Yeah. It's now too easy. Now you mentioned uh, earlier, you talked about the various tactics and techniques. What have you found in terms of the reconstruction side on the back end? What are some of the more helpful techniques you've learned to sort of rebuild or regain that original identity, that original self after you've left Mormonism? That's a really big question. And that's the harder yeah, question. It is thing, huge. Right? Like deconstruction is easy, right? Just look at a thing and get critical of it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of techniques. And honestly, I still have so many hangups that I haven't. I was just thinking the other day, you know, I was like, um, I, I try to pretend that I got my life together because I, I go on things and talk to people. Um, and I, I really don't. I was thinking about it. I was like, you know, do, can I really write a book and stand here and say, look, I've got all the answers. And, and it occurred to me, like, just because the problem is insurmountable or seemingly insurmountable doesn't mean it's not a problem. That doesn't, uh, it doesn't pull the rug out from underneath. You know, I was just thinking this the other day of what I do just to say, like, I don't have all the answers to solve it all. But the biggest one that cult researchers have come up with, and it has definitely helped me at least, at least a lot. It hasn't solved everything for me, but it's really helped is to unpack you just you, doing the deconstruction work is a really big part of it. You've got to go in and consciously, don't just subconsciously let all these levers and buttons that they've installed keep operating you in your life. But it's a it, it's a continual process of looking at your behavior and saying where did this come from, looking at the material like things like I've written, things like the authors that you've cited, Yanya Lalich, uh, yeah, Stephen Austin, yeah, Lifton. Uh, uh, there's a ton of great great authors. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I can list recommendations to of books, but whoever it is you get the information from, even if it's just chatting, doing, going to support group with fellow ex-evangelicals or, or whoever it is, examine. I, I believe this. I got this belief from somewhere. Where did I get it? What purpose is it serving me? What purpose did it serve the group? Is there any workaround? Is there anything I can replace it with? Just consciously examining it and making your own decisions because we each took we each took those messages in our own slightly different way. For some people, love bombing might not have worked at all of them. I'm the kind of person where the love bombing was kind of like, I'm on the autism spectrum. Uh, socially, I don't pick up on all the same cues. And, mm-hmm. and I really never felt the love. I didn't really feel the love a whole lot in my, in my church. I've got, I felt the love in other groups, but not in not my church. So, so it's about looking at your own interpretation of those things and how it sunk into you specifically. And that's the work that you've got to do. No one else can do that for you. Certainly therapy will help you with that or support group or reading, doing your own journaling, any of those kind of uh, mainstream self-improvement tips also apply in this world, um, but just with the added element of the religious trauma of examining that. That's, that's the biggest thing. And then the rest of it, you know, be inquisitive and explore other, I'm not against spirituality. I'm not against what I, what I define spirituality is like, what are my feelings about things? Um, how do I interface with the world? What moral decisions am I making? What purpose have I, do I, what am I living for? How do I treat other beings? Is there anything deeper? Can I tap into that? I, I really recommend some kind of process, but only going with what resonates with you and not going too far into anything. Don't like if something is resonating with you, don't end up in another cult. Mm-hmm. Be careful about what other people are asking you to do in your class, but definitely being figuring out what you need to feel, feel fulfilled really, I think is a big part of the more reconstructive, the positive angle of that. It's so important, isn't it? And I, I love the fact that you've got 31 items on your list because one of the things that helped me reading Lifton and Hassan and Lalich and all these other authors, when I started to name the actual tactics that were used on me, that, that was a giant leap forward, I felt, because I, I was able to name them and see how they had manipulated me in my life growing up and as an evangelical. And then it started to disempower them and I could say, okay, so that's the, t- that's the actual tactic that was used. And I could see the result because Lifton talks about not only the tactic, but the psychological effect that it has on the individual. And I was going, my God, I can see that. I can wow. see how that's translated in my life, even now as an ex-evangelical. So education is, is hugely important. Is it just on, on that level? And then you yeah. can start to go, okay, so I can unpick that conditioning 
and start to, you know, untie that Gordian knot, as it were, of these things that were used on us. Yeah, it pulls it out of the dark. It pull, pulls it into yeah, the sunshine. Yeah, it's a and huge funny step. enough, I study fairy lore too, um, from time to time, and um, that that's an interesting element of a lot of fairy tales and, and um, just fairy lore in general is that knowing something's true name is the magic that will dispel it. So the, the classic story is Rumpelstiltskin, right? Mm -hmm. She just needed to know his true name and then the whole spell would be unraveled. The, the whole obligation would be unraveled. And that's true. We have these psychological feelings of obligation towards the, still towards God, towards the religion, towards behaviors that we think we should have. And it's it like, it's it's insidious. And like, even to this day, like the other day I was sitting on the porch and I was just feeling so overwhelmed and so burnt out with all the pressures and things like I felt like I had to be doing. And this is an like a problem that I have had that won't go away is just feeling compelled to constantly be doing something, even to the point of burnout. And, and the script, Mormon scripture suddenly entered my brain, one that I had memorized and hadn't thought about for so long and had never really unpacked the meaning of each word in this phrase. And, it, and part of the scripture says, whereby men should be anxiously engaged in a good cause to bring to pass much righteousness among men anxiously engaged in a good cause hit me like a lightning bolt after all of this work that i've done all this deconstruction the source of my compulsion to overwork there's a lot of sources from for that for sure but this one that i had to be anxiously engaged not like pretty well engaged or thinking about it or working pretty fairly hard but i had to be anxious about it right like and i am i'm anxious about it so yeah. it's just a constant process but bringing it to the fore really helps it's so true. Those things are like grooved into our brains because I was listening a couple of weeks ago to the Mars Hill podcast. It's on Christianity Today. I don't know if you heard that series about Mark Driscoll and all that. I haven't, but I did. I was living in Seattle like right. when, yeah. when there were um, local papers writing good things about Mars Hill Church. Like <laughs> yeah. I was living there during that and I was like, my cult dar is going off about that place. Yeah, I'm hearing and something like, going on. Publishing scandal hit. and Yeah, but I, yeah. Haven't, I haven't listened to the full thing, but I was kind of there while it was happening. It is interesting because it is still from an evangelical perspective. And they played a clip from a song, a worship song. And I, I, I had that song stuck in my head all day because wow. I'd sung it a million times in yeah. churches. And it's the same example in it. Once I heard that little riff of this worship song, I was like, my God, I've got this song stuck in my head all day long. So these things are so deeply embedded, aren't they? They're just in our yeah. psyche, even though I haven't been in church in well over 15 years. That song yeah. is right there. You know, we yeah, can relive our past. Us. Yeah, yeah it absolutely is. And yeah. I sang those and I could feel the emotions and all the rest of it, you know, so it's right there. Now, I know we're running out of time, but we did we did mention that we were going to have a quick chat about Mormonism and taking dominion. Because, of course, this is a big thing in Christian evangelical circles. We're seeing this now. They've overturned Roe versus Wade in the, in the United States. And they're saying we are establishing a theocracy, blah, 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 the Christian right. How much that relates to the Mormon story? Because they're kind of a minority report on, on that front. You had Mitt Romney, you mentioned, who's a politician. And then it was like, yeah. well, wait a minute, he's a Mormon, too. What does that mean? Right. If he becomes president, is he going to be taking orders from Salt Lake City? And, you know, so how does that work? Yeah, well, and and here's the thing is Mormonism is for being a fringe religion has a lot of representatives in U.S. Congress yeah. and in U.S. politics. And one of the prophets of the Mormon church when I was a kid um, had spent some time as the U.S. Agriculture Secretary. There were numerous cabinet positions that have been filled by Mormons. Um, in terms of business, Mormonism does a really good job of raising up men, usually, um, to be very pro-business and very polished and professional. There's a lot of public speaking training within Mormonism, a lot of leadership training, especially among men in Mormonism. And so Mormons are super business-minded and have had a lot of success in business. So there's a lot of uh, Fortune 500 executives that are Mormon. There are a number of companies and Marriott is one that comes to mind. There's a couple of others um, that were started by Mormons and are huge, massive, multi-million or even billion dollar companies that are famous that everyone's heard of. And so uh, the Speaker of the House in the U.S. Senate for, uh, I think, about a decade was Harry Reid, a Democrat Mormon, but still a Mormon. Mm -hmm. So um, there and the finances of the church are finally starting to leak out and it is astronomical the mormon church has at least a hundred billion dollars in one fund 
and $32 billion in another fund. And that doesn't count their real estate holdings. And those are only the ones that have leaked. Those are not, those aren't like tithing revenues every year. That isn't like whatever other hidden nest eggs they have here or there. So $132 billion just in funds, just in stocks and bonds and funds out surpasses the Catholic church in the United States by like a couple of, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but like a couple of orders of magnitude. Yeah, it's huge. So Mm. in terms of money, even in comparison to fortune 500 companies, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. They're, they're up there. They're up there with Bezos. Right. So, um, so that's, uh, to me, that's a lot of power and a lot of the stuff that you were talking about, um, at court to do with dominionism among evangelicals, a lot of it is eerily, eerily similar to Mm -hmm. what I heard within Mormonism. And it makes me wonder, given all of the conflicts, the external conflicts, you know, like the anti-Mormon Baptists, or the, the, the booth at the fair that taught you uh, what to tell Mormons. Mm-hmm. You know, and we, we were taught to, the, all you guys were the Church of Babylon, the Whore of Babylon, and we yeah. stay away from you because, you know, like uh, for all of that that's going on, it really makes me wonder uh, how much behind the scenes. I, I know that there, there are some outward coalitions, religious faith, uh, what do they call them, faith alliances or whatever, where all the leaders of all these religions get together for conferences every once in a while. And it's all very, uh, where we're all going to be friends now, we're going to stop fighting and all this kind of stuff. I know they've gone in on some ad campaigns together. Um, at least they, they were back in like, I think the late nineties, early two thousands to do some sort of Christianity, Christianity, great kind of mutual prom- promotion. And it just really, it, it makes me, I don't, I'm not much of a big, big conspiracy theorist, but it seems like it would be almost unlikely that they haven't had at least a couple of meetings of like, how do we keep all our people in line and, mm-hmm. and really what do we have in common and how can we promote this dominionist philosophy together and sort of take over together? It seems like they're allies in that cause. So that's all I know. And that's all I'm going to say. I, know, yeah. I don't want to speculate too much mm-hmm. beyond that because I don't have any facts beyond that. And I do like to base what I know on facts, but yeah, I know, you know, a lot on the other side, on the, on the side uh, you were talking you had names, you had dates and places. <laughs> Facts um, and figures. Yeah, so. Uh, yeah. It is interesting, and I'm sure, I'm sure we should compare notes further into the future, because you've, you've certainly given me some ideas of places to look. Because one thing we know about the Christian right, as you, as you mentioned, they are good at for, forging alliances across denominations and formerly, you know, what would have been considered enemies, like the Catholic Church, the Mormons, Jewish uh, congregations. If they can agree on a political thing, they're like, you know what, we're going to just set aside our doctrinal problems. We're going to advance this much bigger goal, as you say, of establishing some kind of theocracy, whatever that looks like, might include might be a fairly large umbrella. So it includes Mormons, Mormons and, and Christians and evangelicals and Catholics and Jews. I don't know. But that's that maybe there's someone out there who knows more about this that can let us know what, what they've uncovered. Yeah. And I, I would be surprised if they got along after they took over. Like mm-hmm. I could see them getting along insofar as, because that's the thing about like nationalism and fascism and all of that is it, you know, and we see it in movies. It's kind of a cheesy plot point at this point, but I'm starting to see it play out. And it's true is that we're, they like to be a big tent. Like we'll include everyone who agrees with our fascistic core principles until they get power and then they're like off with your heads off whoever has the most power in that situation is just like everyone now who's a little bit different is is on the outs Uh, so that's the the big lie but i would be surprised if they're not cooperating to some extent at least in a vague way to get what's happening happening Mm, absolutely right i mean look at the classic dictators of the 20th century hitler did it mussolini did it as soon as they got into power then all of a sudden there were these purges and all sorts of things so you know, they, but these people had helped these guys get into power originally, like you say, and then as soon as they got that power cemented, they turned on some of their yeah. followers, you know, so you're not necessarily safe if you think you're advancing this agenda. <laughs> not exactly. at all. Yeah, it's and I true. think Mormons are going to be first on the chopping block unless their 132 plus billion dollars is what makes them the top dog. I mean, could be. Um, money can get you pretty far in this world so who knows how That's that would true. play out i'd really rather not see it play out because i as a as a lgbt 
um, you know, I'm, I'm non-binary, gender fluid, bisexual, autistic. There are, are so many, you know, I'm white, that, so that kind of helps me. But, but there are so many levels of privilege that I don't have where I'm like, I'm already being targeted right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I'd rather not see it play out because I probably wouldn't live long enough to see it get to that mm-hmm. point. It's so. true because we know what, what they've said, the, the Roe versus Wade playbook. They're now saying the way we it took us 50 years to overturn Roe versus Wade, it's going to take a lot less time to overturn Obergefell and same-sex marriage and things like that. So they're already working on it. It's not a secret. It's it's plain as plain as day. So it's going to take less time, I think, according to their uh, what they're saying. So yeah, you yeah. should definitely be concerned on a lot of levels. Uh, before we go, can you remind us again, what is the title of your book? And then how can people find you on social media if they wanted to connect? Sure. Um, my book is called Recovering Agency, Lifting the Veil of Mormon Mind Control. My uh, author, I actually have two author names right now. I'm sort of between names. Mm-hmm. Um, Luna Corbden is the new name and um, Luna Lindsay or Luna Lindsay Corbden uh, is the book is actually published under Luna Lindsay Corbden. And that's because I have another ex that I'm, I was abusive and I really oh, want right. to distance myself from him. And so the name, mm-hmm. I'm trying to transition off the name. And um, so that's my book. Um, social media, I'm most active on Twitter. Um, I'm on there every day at, and I'm at Corbden and that's C-O-R- B-D-E-N. I have a blog, uh, recoveringagency.com, where uh, from time to time I do some more deconstruction of LDS or Christian themes there as well. That's great. That's so much information. Thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed meeting you. Finally, I'm so glad we finally made this happen after weeks and weeks of COVID and internet problems. We finally made this happen. And I was thinking too, if you're available, I know this is a long way off, but in September, we're going to be starting up our MindShift Zoom calls, which are a group call. I would love to have you on as a guest. So if you're available in September, I'll tap you again and we'll see if we can get you back on either in September or October if, you, if you're up for that too. I'd love to. Yeah, okay. Thank you so much, Luna. And I will certainly speak to you again. All right. Thanks a lot.